Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll focus again on the debt limit, with time quickly running out before the nation faces a default on its obligations. There was uh, some glimmer of hope this week that a crisis can be avoided. Following a high-level meeting at the White House on Tuesday afternoon, which was the second such meeting this month, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said that a deal is possible by June 1st when the Treasury Department says it might run out of money to pay its bills in full and on time if no deal is struck. For his part, the president canceled the tail end of a trip he's planning to attend uh, the G7 uh, summit in Japan so he can be back in Washington by the weekend in case there's some final deal that needs his input. Right now, it's in the hands of top White House and congressional staffers to work things out. And so I turn to my top staffers, (laughs) Policy Director Tori Gorman and Chief Economist Steve Robinson, both Capitol Hill veterans, to get their perspective on how things might play out. Tori and Steve, welcome back to Facing the Future. Hi, Bob. Thanks, Bob. Um, All right. So here we are on uh, we're recording this on Wednesday, the 17th. And uh, I noticed that um, checking the daily Treasury statements, you can actually check and see how much cash the government has on hand. It's got it's got, I think, eighty seven billion dollars on hand. uh, And then it's still got some extraordinary measures left. I think CBO said earlier that it was down to like 41 billion or something. So, yeah, I mean, I'd like 87 billion in my bank account. But uh, for (laughs) the federal government, that's that's scraping the bottom of the barrel. Um, Tori, you looked up an interesting number about how close we came before. Yeah. So the last time we had one of these really big cliffhangers over uh, the debt limit was back in August of 2011, folks will remember. And we literally passed legislation addressing the debt limit the day before the deadline. So on August 1st of 2011, before the Budget Control Act of 2011 was enacted on, on August 2nd, Treasury had about $69 billion in cash on hand, uh, which is not a whole lot different than what we've got now, especially since our, our burn rate, you know, our daily burn rate, our monthly burn rate is a lot higher now than it was back in 2021. But what was really interesting 
is when I looked beyond that date. So we enacted the Budget Control Act in, in, on August 2nd, but it takes a little while for the, the machinery at Treasury to get cranking so they can then start issuing debt, which can then generate the cash they need to put into their checking accounts, so to speak, so they can pay bills. And Treasury actually got down to as low as $16.6 billion a week after the Budget Control Act was enacted, which is just a whisper. I mean, you can imagine $16 billion going out in a single day in in Treasury, given everything that they have to do. So, I mean, they really, really, really cut it close in 2011. And we've got a higher burn rate now in 2023. And we're almost to that, that critical point. And there are no smoke signals that they're even remotely close to a deal right now. So, if I were a staffer, if, if I worked for Janet Yellen or if I worked for you know a, a leadership office in Congress, I'd be sweating bullets. I would not be sleeping at night. And I definitely if I was sleeping, I'd be sleeping with my phone on my chest. Yeah, I think that uh, you make a good point, which is this this isn't like a government shutdown where they can just like pass something that automatically says, you know, now you have authority. Right. I mean, this this. There it's like turning f- an aircraft carrier, right? It yeah, takes, I mean, you got a big they're, they're, turning radius to get that sucker around. You got to sell bonds and, you know, you have to schedule auctions and raise the mm-hmm. cash. And then you got to hope that you don't get flooded with uh, bills because you don't know exactly what's coming in. It's not like you the Treasury can't time these things, which is why. Uh, there's such a, a long range. I mean, anything from early June to sometime in August uh, mm-hmm. seems to be what everybody's saying. And I, so I get a kick out of all the all the stories, all the uh, media, except this show, t- talks about a June 1st deadline mm-hmm. as if, you know, well, it could happen on May 28th. Who knows? Right. It could happen in August. Uh, it's, exactly. It really is such a matter of Cash flows. By the way, the August thing is, as we talked about with Rachel Snyderman on the BPC, if you get to June 15th, you get a burst of cash from quarterly tax filing. So that's what right, gets right, you right. to August. It's, um, uh, so, Steve, um, do you see any uh, I'm hitting you out of the blue from this one. But I mean, the <laughs> other uh, aside from the budgetary uh, consequences, when you look at reactions in the treasury markets there's already some some roiling and anomalies in in short term uh, treasuries is that correct yeah there's been several stories lately that uh that the treasury bills one month treasury bills that are scheduled to come due in june the interest rates on those have already spiked i think they're around 5 6% I saw a story this morning saying they predicted that you know, if it gets down to the wire, you could see those rates going up to 10%. Um, so, you know, I mean, I want to buy those. <laughs> pre- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pre- presumably, this is just a temporary spike in interest rates, and it's limited to those maturities uh, of, of securities that come due, you know, in the time frame that they were worried about. But, you know, I mean, the, the broader issue here is when you when you have 30 trillion in debt. You know, every time the the interest rates go up one percent, if it, if that happened across the board, and it was sustained, you know, that's an additional three hundred billion dollars that we're going to have to pay in, in interest on the national debt. So, you know, 
interest rates going up even temporarily can be disruptive. But, you know, if, if you know, we were to default and interest rates, you know, the, the credit rating agencies downgrade the U.S. debt and, and we sort of have to start paying a, a risk premium, you know, it's going to be hugely expensive. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you mentioned default. Everybody says that default is off the table. I want to just define default because people sometimes are talking past each other. When, when the Republicans say default is off the table, I think what they're saying is we will not default on treasuries uh, that will pay the interest and roll over the principal. Mm-hmm. Democrats tend to have a broader definition of default, meaning if you if the government fails to make any of its required payments, yeah, required payments, uh, that's a default. So I I tend to use the broader uh, definition simply because it seems to me the most important thing is whether the entity, in this case, the federal government is able or willing to make its legal obligations so I don't think you could just confine the, the potential damage to just defaulting on treasuries. Obviously, that would be very, very, very bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the really catastrophic events come from that. But it's, um, it, it still affects one's creditworthiness if you default on legal obligations that the government can be sued for. I, I, I mean, I, I agree. I, 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 and that, that's the, the, you know, that's sort of the attitude that concerns many watchers, if you will, of this, uh, the financial markets, um, you know, analysts, credit rating agencies, et cetera, is you've got an attitude among some house Republicans that as long as we're able to make our interest payments, we haven't defaulted. Um, and so if June 1 comes and we don't have uh, an agreement, well, then we can still keep making payments on our interest, right? Uh, we can prioritize payments and still make payments on our interest. So it's not calamitous. Um, but I, I think there are a lot of people that, that, that disagree with that, including people, and Steve, you might have comments here, uh, but people who, who receive Social Security benefits, for example, you know, there are a significant portion of senior citizens who rely on Social Security as their only mean, means of income in, in retirement. And, you know, there's a big question mark over whether or not Social Security checks would continue to get written in the event that we've, you know, breached the debt ceiling, even under prioritization. So uh, I think they would definitely call that default if they're not seniors would, if they're not getting their Social Security payments. So... Steve, I, yeah, I want to comments before, there. <laughs> but, well, before plunging into the escape clause, <laughs> I want to keep the discussion at a little bit broader uh, level on that, because, you know, one of the concerns is that um, that broader definition of default means people aren't getting payments. Payments are delayed uh, and uh, and that could weaken the economy that could be a shock to the economy, which is already being contracted. Uh, you know, it's not contracting, but I mean, it's already being pressured by the Fed's deliberate uh, response or deliberate attempt to, you know, slow inflation and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, perhaps cool off the economy. Um, 
you know, could this inadvertently uh, help tip into recession? I mean, if people are already saying that what the Fed has been doing is likely to lead to a mild recession sometime later in the year. If you add on to that a sudden fiscal contraction, then you've got monetary policy and fiscal policy. Uh, you know, the, the brakes are being applied very sharply to both at the same time, which seems to me it could uh, heighten the the risk of a recession later on. Steve, do you want to weigh in um, on? Yeah, I mean, clearly the, the government is spending, you know, close to six trillion dollars. And if they suddenly stopped, <laughs> that, that would cause a people would sudden. notice. <laughs> yeah, People would notice that. Um, but, you know, it's not a matter of them turning it all off and, and keeping it off. I mean, presumably, if you get to the X date and we've reached the debt limit, we can't borrow any more money. Um, you know, it's sort of like the argument about Social Security Trust Fund. You know, the argument is when the when Social Security Trust Fund is, is uh, you know, depleted, uh, all the Social Security checks don't stop. The argument is, well, we're still collecting payroll taxes. And as those taxes come in, we will eventually get enough money to make the check payments. Uh, and so what happens or what what is presumed to happen since it's never actually happened, but what's the, the presumption is, is that they would all be delayed. And so you'd have the same situation here where as the payroll taxes and the income taxes and the corporate taxes, as they flow into the treasury, you know, the treasury would begin to accumulate cash. So if it stopped payments for a day or two, once it got enough cash to make those payments from, you know, that, that it had been holding, it could go ahead and make those payments. And so the, the question becomes, how long would payments get delayed? And, you know, if, if the debt ceiling is not raised, you know, for a week or two weeks or three weeks, it may be that that delay period becomes longer and longer. Um, but, but the idea is that, you know, the checks would be sent out with some sort of a delay. And so the shock wouldn't be, you know, immediate and absolute and permanent, but it, but it certainly would become noticeable. I mean, if you're a social security recipient and you're expecting your check on Wednesday and it doesn't come and you've got bills to pay and groceries to buy, you know, that's going to sort of trickle, trickle down through the economy as, as people, you know, contract their spending in anticipation of delayed income. So clear, clearly it would have an effect. Um, I, I, I do want to raise at this point the, uh, the escape clause because uh, you've written extensively about that. And of course, we don't know whether it will need to be used, but um, the peculiarity of Social Security and, and uh, Medicare is the accounting of the trust funds. So both programs have positive balances in the, their, their trust funds, which is not a wad of cash sitting around. But it is meant to be a, a way to tap into the Treasury uh, for money to, to pay uh, benefits. And the, the problem is that it, the Treasury can tap into the trust funds. That's fine. But that's an accounting mechanism. It then has to turn around and sell uh, bonds to the public to come up with the cash to make those benefit payments. Um, but you think that there may be a way that the Social Security, that the, the Treasury Secretary, who's the chief trustee um, of the uh, system, could make 
the benefits, uh, make those benefit payments? Well, yeah, yeah, you have to understand, Sam, one thing in order to realize why this might work. So we have a debt limit, which applies to the total debt. The 31 trillion in total debt outstanding is what's subject to a limit. So you can't borrow more than that, that amount. Part of that debt is about 25 trillion is comprised of debt held by the public, banks and insurance companies and financial institutions and, and other you know, pension funds, whatever. So that that's held by the public. The other six, roughly six trillion, is held by the government trust funds: Social Security, Medicare, Civil Service, Military Retirement, Highway Trust Fund, the Leaking Underground Storage Tank Trust Fund. You know, there's there's at one point GAO did a study. There's like 150 or 60 trust funds, or there were at the time. I, some of them may or were very. Oh, I think simple. it's I think it's around 200 now. Yeah, I mean, it, it, some of them are very very small. So you know, but the big the big ten probably are 90 percent of the money, but. Um, the debt held by the trust funds also count toward the debt limit. And so what happens normally, what's called extraordinary measures, when the Secretary of Treasury runs up against the limit, she has authority under existing law to go over to the civil service fund and take some of the trust funds or some of the bonds out of that trust fund. So what happens is they lower that that six trillion that's held by the trust funds, they can reduce that amount, and then they can then turn around and borrow an equivalent amount from the public. So they're able to sort of do this accounting maneuver where they lower the trust fund debt in order to raise the debt held by the public, but the total stays underneath the 31 trillion limit. So that's what's happened in previous years. That's what happened at the beginning of this year. So the question becomes, when you get to the point where you can't raise the debt limit anymore, and you've already used the extraordinary measures that are allowed by law, which is what they're saying could happen in June, um, is there any other discretion? Can the secretary do anything else to, to continue to borrow money? Now, my argument is that if you look at the law, this, the secretary of treasury is the managing trustee of both social security and Medicare um, and military and probably some of the, most of the other funds. They have the authority to take money out of or take money. They have the authority to redeem bonds held by those trust funds in order to borrow from the public. If they need to redeem bonds to pay benefits, the statute very clearly says they're only required to invest or, or, or keep invested the portion of the bonds that they don't need to pay benefits. So if they need to pay benefits, they arguably can redeem some of those bonds. And so my argument is the statute clearly says if they have to borrow money to pay benefits, the only way they can do that is to redeem bonds, then those bonds are needed to pay benefits. And so, you know, my reading of the statute would basically say that, yeah, that if the secretary chose to continue to pay Social Security benefits and Medicare benefits and other trust fund benefits, they can redeem the bonds from those trust funds in order to borrow an equivalent amount from the public and pay the benefits. And of course, obviously, once Congress raises the debt limit at some point, they can make the trust funds whole. So they're no worse off as a result of these, you know, redemptions of, of bonds earlier than they would have normally happened. That gets into a question of prioritization, though, because if the Treasury Secretary can't prioritize, which she says she can't, and there's no obvious authority to uh, let her do so, um, then the then she might have to borrow enough or draw down enough from the trust funds to pay not just the social security benefits but other bills as well because otherwise she couldn't assure that the social security recipients checks wouldn't bounce yeah no it's a dilemma i mean i i, I use the example that, that you deposit two thousand dollars into your checking account to pay your rent 
And unbeknownst to you, your spouse writes a $200 check for groceries. And the grocery check clears the bank before your rent check does. And so when the rent check gets there, it bounces because there's not the $2,000 that you deposited. So what the Treasury Secretary would have to do is to say, well, we don't know the timing of all the checks that are coming in. So perhaps we need to put in a little extra money to clear the checks that are going to come in to make sure that the Social Security checks don't bounce. And that makes it a little more difficult. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the pending debt limit crisis and hopes for a solution. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the pending debt limit crisis and hopes for a solution. Uh, we've been talking a little bit about the consequences if they don't make a deal. So let's talk about the deal. <laughs> I guess you can you, you can talk about, you know, glass half full or half empty. Um, uh, you know, there were signs of progress. At least the rhetoric seemed uh, more optimistic following yesterday's meeting. This is the Tuesday afternoon meeting because they had had one earlier. Uh, the week before, which didn't sound so positive. Um, but two two green shoots to me were uh, Kevin McCarthy said that a deal could be done by June 1st. And Joe Biden canceled the, uh, the tail end of his trip uh, following the G7 summit. Uh, he's leaving today. He plans to be back on Sunday, um, today being Wednesday. And um, so, and they narrowed the, the uh, group of negotiators. So it, it did seem that there were some little signs of progress, at least procedurally. But I turned out to two congressional staffers to either give me a reality check on that or. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tori, what do you think? Progress or not? Uh, I don't think there's been any measurable product, progress at this point. And I think that's why they they made the negotiating room a little smaller. Basically, they booted out uh, Mitch McConnell, his staff, and uh, Senator Schumer. Uh, basically, the two the two party leaders in the Senate got booted out. Um, yeah, when you have too many people in a room, um, it's just really impossible to make forward progress. Uh, so, it, it's pretty clear that they were not making progress and the room needed to get smaller. The number of negotiators needed to get smaller. So basically by uninviting McConnell and, and Schumer, they're basically saying the house and the president are saying the Senate, you're going to just going to have to take whatever it is that we put together, both of you. Yeah. It's, it, it seems that that is uh, some sort of progress. If you're, you know, narrowing that field, Steve, um, I mean, what what did you make of the, uh, the 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 changes from this week? Yeah, I mean, cl- clearly narrowing the number of negotiators <laughs> makes it easier to negotiate, but you still have the problem of selling the deal when you're done. I mean, if, mm-hmm. if you're a negotiator and you go in the room and you say, I, "I've cut this great deal," and you go back out and you try to sell it to your troops, and you realize that 
you, you actually cut the wrong deal or you cut a deal that you don't have support <laughs> yeah. for. I mean, that that's the, the dilemma that, that both the president and Speaker McCarthy have. I, I have no doubt the two of them could cut a deal. They could go in the room. They could be done in an hour. The problem is, is when they walk out of the room, they've got to get 60 votes in the Senate and 218 in the House. And I'm not sure that whatever Biden and McCarthy come up with is got the votes in the House and the Senate. Mm-hmm. It's going to it's either they're going to have to basically come up with something that crosses party lines, because what's what's going to happen is that McCarthy's going to lose some Republicans and, you know, Schumer is going to lose some Democrats. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, they've got to thread the needle here. Of what what where's the common ground that I can get the votes that I need from not either party, but from both parties. And as a result, I mean, you're already seeing comments from, you know, some of the progressives in the House saying, you know, we're going to oppose whatever deal that, you know, if if the president is trading away our priorities in order to get a debt limit, you know, we're, we're never going to go along with that, which, you know, arguably, right. you know, they can afford to lose some votes mm-hmm. in, in both houses. But the question is, you know, at the end of the day, they've got to get enough votes. And so, yeah, that's, it's, it's, yeah. It's really interesting because it's it's all right now, at least the chat of this week is it's boiling, you know, this is the, the biggest point of contention for this week, and I'm sure there will be more, is work requirements for uh childless adults under the Medicaid program. You know, the Republicans are are determined to add a work requirement or enhance the work requirement uh for childless adults who receive Medicaid benefits. Democrats, especially progressive Democrats, including the House uh minority leader, Hakeem Jeffries, says that is a no-go for me. So, you know, Steve's absolutely right. Is there, you look at this like a Venn diagram from, you remember from from geometry when you were in high school, you know, is there, uh, are there policy circles that intersect that, you know, Republicans and Democrats both like that gets you to the numbers that you need to get through the Senate and through the House? And right now that Venn diagram is pretty damn empty. It's the null set. Um, It's very, I'm hoping that between now and June 1st that they'll start to populate that Venn diagram, but it, it's going to require some pretty significant leadership and, and crafty um, gamesmanship from from both both gentlemen. Well, that's that that's the thing, and it, it sort of gets back to what we were talking about: are the dwindling cash uh, balances that they don't have a lot of time, and yet, you know, there are still some really really big issues mm-hmm. to resolve. And if they put aside those really really big issues. They could probably strike a deal on appropriations. That's kind of the simplest thing where you can split the difference of how tight is the cap and how long does the cap last? And I think you could do that. There are a couple of other things around the margin on COVID relief bills and student loans. I think, you know, the Republicans are probably everybody's probably happy to leave that alone because the Supreme Court's going to deal with it and then they can come back to it after that's happened. So there are there are things about the House conditions, uh, you know, that they could probably negotiate on. But the the White House has been pretty adamant that they don't want to take the climate, uh, uh, you know, climate change subsidies off the table. And uh, uh, they don't want to put those on the table, rather. Mm -hmm. And as you said, it's those work requirements over uh, Medicaid and SNAP. And, you know, if you look at SNAP, now Medicaid is a big program. I think you SNAP mean- is a very small program in the general. Uh, I mean, if you look at the 
president's uh, at the House Speaker's bill, um, the savings that the work requirements get on the uh, TANF program and SNAP are, and I'm using technical terms here, I apologize. <laughs> They're, you know, food stamps or family assistance programs. It's really, the savings are very small, like six, seven billion. And, you know, that's from an $4.8 trillion savings bill. So once again, you know, things that are holding up a negotiation are not the biggest part of the deal. But they're symbolically, I guess, the most important point. But they don't have a lot of time to, to drag these things out. So that, I, again, if... Mm. I think the key question here, and I, I think back to the, uh, you remember the Andrews Air Force uh, Summit back in 1990 or whenever it was with uh, President Bush and brought everybody to Andrews Air Force Base, George H.W. Bush to ne negotiate. And they got, uh, they got a negotiation done and they were all very happy and they came back and Newt Gingrich, who was a backbencher sort of in the, in the house, was like, uh-uh, you know, he got a revolt against it. And uh, this is the scenario that Steve was talking about. Um, limiting the number of people in the room means that you don't have enough people in the takeoff. You know, the, you talk about if you want me in on the landing, I got to be in on the takeoff. And uh, so that's a that's a danger what's going on now. I'm, I'm you know, but they don't have time <laughs> to fail. Mm -hmm. It's weird. It's one of those scenarios where it's like last summer when we were talking about reconciliation and the Democrats. On one hand, we couldn't see how the Democrats got to a reconciliation bill because they're just the Venn diagram of policy, you know, policies that that Manchin and, and his Democratic colleagues in the Senate would accept were just so very different. And yet we couldn't fathom a situation where de Senate Democrats couldn't come up with a reconciliation bill. It's like, oh, come on. You know, this feels like that. It's like, all right. I, I, I'm struggling to see, you know, the Venn diagram that gets us through this. On the other hand, failure to do so is is unfathomable. But, you know, so that that, you know, last summer's reconciliation renewal at the last minute should give us hope that they're going to put together some sort of debt limit bill in time. Now, it may be that they don't have the framework of a proposal until June 1st, and they, they haven't passed the legislation by June 1st, at which point, you know, I'm very much hoping that the House and Senate will be uh, adults about this and pass a, a two or three week suspension of the debt limit to get the legislation, give time for the legislation to get written and to to go through the procedural hoops in the House and the Senate before the president can sign it. Um, but you're right. They're, they're, they're running out of time to negotiate a deal, to get the framework, the parameters of a deal on paper and sign it. Well, it seems to me a lot of this is, is going to be uh, presentation in the sense that you, you have to have something where both sides can claim victory. Right. Uh, and I, I don't I don't know exactly how that's done. I guess you can just say on the Biden side, we, we didn't we weren't negotiating about the debt ceiling. And, <laughs> uh, you know, McCarthy can say, yes, we were. And uh, uh, I don't I don't know procedurally. Well, I, in the in the house, there's something they can do. I mean, presumably, given the luxury of time, they could move two individual bills. Um, but I think what you might see in the house uh, is a you know the house they vote on legislation, 
uh, under the guidance of a rule. So before they address legislation, they vote on a rule. The rule sets out the parameters for the debate. I can see very much the House putting forward a rule that creates two independent pieces of legislation, one on the debt limit, one on all the, the spending cuts that House Republicans are asking for. And those move through the House independently. And then that rule, when it's adopted, says, OK, when those two pieces of legislation have passed the House, we're going to marry them together and then send them over to the Senate as a single passage, sing, single package, excuse me. And then the Senate approves it and off it goes to the president. So the Senate is acting on a single piece of legislation. The president signs a single piece of legislation, but Democrats in the House and Republicans in the House are voting on two separate measures, which would allow Democrats to carry the debt limit and claim a clean debt limit increase. And House Republicans would vote on the spending cuts and they can say, hey, we didn't vote for an increase in the, the debt limit. Uh, that is uh, spoken like a true former Senate parliamentarian, not that you were the <laughs> parliamentarian in the Senate, but I mean, <laughs> for the budget committee in the Senate, for the budget committee. Um, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson and I are discussing the pending debt limit crisis and the chances for a solution. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman, Steve Robinson, and I are discussing the pending debt limit crisis and whether or not uh, there will be a solution. You know, Steve, there's been uh, uh, some talk about if they can't reach a um, any sort of deal between the two sides that perhaps the president would say that the 14th Amendment is uh, precludes him from enforcing the uh, the debt ceiling that the debt ceiling in fact is unconstitutional uh, I think you I think it's fair to say you're a skeptic of that argument uh, what do you think yeah so just to, to remind folks the the 14th amendment uh, to the Constitution says essentially that the validity of the public debt of the United States, comma, authorized by law, shall not be questioned. And so the question is, what does that mean? We can't question the validity of, of the debt. And, and many people who refer to this, they leave out the section that says authorized by law. Um, because in my mind, what that says is that the debt limit is a law that authorizes the amount of money the government can borrow. And so if you were to exceed the debt limit, the argument is, well, you can't question the validity of that debt. Well, the problem is, is any debt above the debt limit is not authorized because by definition, that's what the debt limit does. It authorizes a specific amount of debt. And so if you exceed that amount, you now have unauthorized debt. And in my mind, you can question the validity of that because it wasn't authorized. And so, I mean, it really doesn't help the president. I mean, were he to invoke the 14th Amendment, because there is clearly uncertainty about whether that debt would be valid or not, people would be questioning the validity of it. <laughs> there would be a lawsuit. The investors would say, okay, I've bought some debt. Is it valid? Will I get it repaid? You know, how much interest am I going to charge to, to, to lend this extra money? So, you know, in my mind, invoking the 14th Amendment does not solve the White House problem by making the validity of the debt unquestionable. In fact, it would make it explicitly questionable. And the question is, debt that exceeds the limit 
is it valid or not? And I mean, it, it just raises all those legal issues. And, you know, at a time when you're trying to calm the market and avoid panic and, you know, in the midst of a default, I don't, I don't think it gets the job done. Yeah, I think that that's, that's my concern with the 14th Amendment. I, I would differ with you in the sense that I, I think a good faith argument can be made that the debt limit can be uh, uh, applied in an unconstitutional manner. And I'd love to have an argument about that, except it doesn't solve the problem. Uh, It does create uncertainty. It does question the debt. (laughs) And I think that that's why presidents have not invoked it. Uh, So, uh, you know, I doubt that they're going to go that route. And, you know, you can't get the Supreme Court to just issue a declaratory judgment on something like that. Uh, You know, the president would have to actually try an auction and then there would be a a suit trying to block the auction of bonds over the debt ceiling. And I imagine the court would be pretty quick in in how it would take it up. But but to me, it points out the fundamental flaw of the debt ceiling um, in that it, it is not part of the budget process. It is an afterthought. Mm. So Congress has the authority to tax and it has the authority to spend and it has the authority to borrow. Mm -hmm. And so when it passes spending laws and tax laws and produces debt, arguably to me, that is debt authorized by law because they are going to have to borrow to make good on the spending and tax policy they made. So the debt limit then comes along and says, and it's not part of the budget process. They don't consider the debt ceiling when they're passing these laws. It's just like, oh, we passed a bunch of laws that created huge debts. And oh, by the way, uh, you can't pay uh, in full for these legal obligations that we've made. And that gets into all the problems that we were talking about before, which is that you have legal obligations that won't be paid in full if you exceed the debt ceiling. Uh, and that, that's the, the argument for why you actually have sort of a conflict of laws here and that you have the president is supposed to do what? Um, is he supposed to make good on the payments that Congress has authorized or cut them arbitrarily because of the debt ceiling that Congress has authorized? It is a very schizophrenic procedure that the GAO government accountability office has been pointing this out for years, that this makes absolutely no sense, whether or not it's unconstitutional. I don't know, (laughs) but it, it really doesn't make any sense. Agreed. (laughs) I think you said it best. I'm not going to argue with you. So, um, you know, we, uh, I, one argument that I've heard, and, and uh, former President Trump made this at his town hall meeting the other day, is, well, the debt, is, we're on such a terrible trajectory on the debt path that, uh, that uh, we might as well just go ahead and default because, it, you know, it's, in effect, it couldn't be worse. It's going to happen. I, that just strikes me as kind of an odd um, way of thinking. But what about that? I mean, we all we all think that the debt is on an unsustainable course. Does defaulting help? That's not leadership. There, there are a lot of things that we benefit from here. 
in the United States that makes us unique among all nations and unique among all democracies. And, and one of which is that our, you know, the US dollar is, is the world's reserve currency. And when there is a, a flight to safety, you know, investors flee to treasury securities, treasury bonds, you know, and for that reason, you know, we're able to <laughs> do all the things that we're able to do, you know, provide social security benefits, provide Medicaid care benefits for seniors, you know, do, do all these things. And I think when you start defaulting on our debt, uh, then that's no longer the case. Um, there will no longer, you know, the flight to quality will not be to U.S. treasuries, um, you know, international contracts will not be denominated in U.S. dollars. There won't be a demand for for the U.S. dollar. The value of the dollar will plummet. And I just, I don't, you know, he may think that those things work well in business, you know, but his business is a microcosm of, of the entire U.S. economy. You know, if, if Donald Trump decides to default on his debt or declare bankruptcy, you know, that's a blip. On the, I don't even think it registers as a blip on the radar screen in the U.S. economy, um, but you know, to to take an entire nation <laughs> and and default on that debt, that's an entirely different matter. So you know, his business practices are not applicable in this instance. Yeah, this is the case where the you know people say, well, if the government was run like a business, you know, blah blah blah. Well, it it in this case, there's a significant difference between. You can use bankruptcy as a business strategy, but you can't uh, do that with the nation's economy, uh, the nation's budget. Uh, at least you can't do it without severe repercussions that would have uh, long-term effects. And even talking about it is is a bad thing um, because you know you, it undermines the confidence, as, as you were saying. You know, we've had repeated government shutdowns. They can't pass appropriation bills anymore until there's a threat of a shutdown on September 30th. I worry that, you know, with this high profile showdown, however it uh, is resolved, it's, it's going to become routine as with the um, shutdowns. Suppose we now have a, a Republican president comes in and, and, a, and you get a Democratic Congress and they say, well, why should we be chumps? We can play this game, too. No debt ceiling increase without a wealth tax or no debt ceiling increase without, a, 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 I don't know, um, rescinding border wall funding or something. I mean, it, 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 it does worry me that the long term consequences for the budget process just lead to more um, periodic chaos. We've been seeing that. I mean, it- you know, you you talk about you know the the annual appropriations process. I mean, I I don't even know the last time. I think it's back in the mid 1990s was the last time Congress actually passed you know the 13 regular appropriation bills on time. You know, before the beginning of the fiscal year, and you know you have seen this regular, ongoing, and and I think increasing practice of you know using these these leverage points of shutting down the government of defaulting on the debt as a way to get something that you wouldn't, or, or to, to try to get something that you wouldn't be able to get through the, 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 the process, you know, and it, it's, it's a, it's a problem of divided government. I mean, you know, the, the political parties um, have moved farther apart um, and, 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 and therefore they, they, you know, I mean, as a, as a, you know, as an incumbent politician, 
you're more likely, certainly at the federal level, you're more likely to lose in a primary than you are in a general election. And so you've seen both parties move to the extremes, appealing to their base and maintaining support, you know, at the, at the party level. But, you know, as a result, then when, it, when they get to Washington, you know, they, they're not able to compromise. They're not able to work with the other party to work across the aisle and try to solve problems because they've, they've become both parties to, to a large degree have become beholden to their base and that prevents compromise. And so, you know, when you can't get, when you can't work with the other side, you end up in these situations where, you know, you, you try to take hostages and negotiate, you know, under duress and, you know, it's not, not a good way to run the government. No, hardly. Um, well, uh, that's all the time we have for this week, but I, you know, no matter how the debt limit ceiling, uh, plays out, I think, one thing is certain is that we do have a long-term budget problem that does need to be addressed. Um, holding the line on the debt ceiling is not necessarily the best way to do it. Uh, but anyway, we'll see. Hopefully, there will be long-term negotiations about the budget and the uh, unsustainable track that the debt is on. Well, I'm that hoping next week. I'm hoping what? next week. I said I'm hoping next week's show we'll be able to talk about. Okay, here's what they came up with. Yeah, that would be that would be fun. Whenever they do it, we'll talk about it. So uh, that's all for this week, though. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Thanks for tuning in. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future.